54 on page 1159. I'll be inviting um, Ian and Samuel Carpenter up for the scripture reading. So today's reading is from Ephesians 6, 1 to 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Samuel. So we've just finished our sermon series on the book of Ruth in which we saw themes of God's presence, God's provision, God's sovereignty, and God's redemption. Now, before we start our next sermon series, we're going to take a quick two-week detour and explore what the Bible teaches about the relationships between parents and children. And today we're going to be focusing on this relationship from the parents' point of view. Now, I know not all of you are parents, And so before you guys completely tune me out, I wanted to encourage you guys uh, to view this message through one of two possible lenses. So one possible lens you could view this uh, this message through is that of mutual understanding. To grow in our relationships with each other, we have to understand each other better. And to understand each other better, we have to be able to grasp, you know, what the struggles, what the stresses, what the hopes, and what the desires of each other are. And so for those of you without kids, whether single or married, I'd encourage you to take this opportunity to consider what it is that your parents might uh, feel and what it is that your parents might go through as you listen to this message. The second lens that you can look at this message through is that of community. It's been said that it takes a village to raise a child. And so I'd encourage you guys to consider as you listen how you might support those those parents that you know whether it be through prayer and accountability, or whether it might be even through uh, informal discipleship, informal mentorship of their children. Now, it's not easy being a parent in this day and age. And part of the reason is there's so many different parenting styles and philosophies from which to choose from. There's the free-range parent, in which kids are given as much freedom as possible at as early in the age as possible. So, for example, you know, as early as they can, a free-range parent will let their kids walk to school by themselves, will let them ride public transportation by themselves, will let them go shopping at the mall by themselves. And then there's the helicopter parent, so-called because the parent's hovering over the kids at all times. The helicopter parent is constantly involved in the child's life as the child faces different risks, different opportunities, different life decisions, up to and even through college. Then there's the all-too-familiar tiger parent, 
made famous by this book published a few years ago. The type for the tiger parent, academics trumps everything. An A minus might as well be an F. And our public schools coddle our children, so the tiger parent has to supplement with additional hours of homework, additional hours of piano practice and violin practice each and every day. Maybe some of you guys find this familiar. And then there's the intensive parent. I couldn't think of a good graphic, so this is intense, the exclamation point. This, t- this term was coined recently by a Cornell study, which defined intensive parenting as the type of parenting that most American parent- parents uh, think of as the ideal form of parenting. The Atlantic, in a recent article, described it as supervised enriching playtime, frequent conversations about thoughts and feelings, patient well-reasoned explanations of household rules and extracurriculars. Lots and lots and lots of extracurriculars. Maybe some of you parents can identify with this style of parenting. And the thing is, you know, even though our kids might not see it, regardless of which style of parenting you might veer towards, behind each style is a love for our kids. It's a desire to equip our children with the skills and things that they need to succeed in life. It's a desire that our kids have a better life than we ever have had so far. And as Christian parents, we value, we prioritize the spiritual well-being of our children. But what does it mean to be a Christian parent? What is the biblical philosophy, the biblical style of raising your kid? And what does that philosophy look like when you transplant it from 2,000 years ago when it was first written to our present-day context? Well, as we explore Ephesians 6, verse 4, we'll define three Gs that that surround Christian parenting. And we'll see that Christian parenting requires intentional discipleship. So how do we, how, what does intentional discipleship look like, though? What makes it intentional? And discipleship is this really nebulous term that we often you know, throw out there in the church, and we don't really know exactly what discipleship is. Well, we'll start by defining intentional discipleship, how Paul, where's Paul started, which is by exploring what it's not. So in the first part of verse 4, we're taught that we must guard against discouraging our children. The first part of verse 4 reads, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Now, when I was a kid, this was one of my favorite verses. Not too infrequently, I'd go up to my dad and just to annoy him, I'd say, Dad, you're exasperating me. Of course, I was taking it out of context. So what does this verse actually mean? What does it mean not to exasperate your children? To understand this, we have to go back to the first century, to understand what first century Roman households looked like. In the first century, the pater familias, or the father of the family, had complete authority over his family as the head of household. William Barclay writes, a Roman father had absolute power over his family. He could sell them as slaves. He could make them work in his fields, even in chains. He could take the law into his own hands. For the law was in his own hands, and punished as he liked. He could even inflict the death penalty on his child. 
it was pretty common in the first century because of limited resources that whenever a newborn was born, that this newborn would be presented to the father, after which the father could choose either to accept the child into his family and raise him under his roof or reject the child, in which case the child was put out of the home, likely to die. Now, this isn't to say that first century fathers were cruel and mean. I mean, most of them were pretty benevolent, but it's just in the circumstances where there were limited resources, fathers had to make certain choices. But it's this absolute authority that fathers had in their household that Paul is, is contrasting and looking at um, when he's talking about this, why he emphasizes the idea of fathers and not mothers here. So when we look at our present-day context, we see that mothers have authoritative roles too, alongside fathers, when it comes to raising children. So as we explore this verse, unfortunately, mothers, you too can't exasperate your children. To understand what the word exasperate means, though, also requires looking at what that first century, you know, authoritative authority, absolute authority that fathers had. And this authority is contrasted against what Paul wrote just a chapter earlier in Romans chapter 5, verse 21. In, in, oh, sorry, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. In Ephesians 5, 21, Paul basically frames this entire section about familial relationships by writing, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so in chapter 6, verse 4, we're basically seeing what submission looks like in the parent-child relationship. This word exasperate has connotations of provoking to anger or provoking to resentment. And so Paul's basically saying in verse 4 that what it looks like for a parent to submit to his child is to basically avoid overly antagonizing your children by avoiding causing your child to become bitter against you. Now this doesn't mean that we're not going to make our children mad. I mean, as, so as Christian parents were to model Christ's submission and to model this Christ-like selfless love requires sometimes to do things that make our kids mad. But Paul's trying to argue against this idea of being overly punitive. In Colossians, he writes something similarly. He writes, Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. And so Paul's basically saying, that we must guard ourselves against discouraging our children by avoiding sinning against them, by avoiding being overly punitive, by avoiding overwhelming their psyche. And you know, this isn't easy, because as parents, we have a lot of responsibilities surrounding work, surrounding family, surrounding church, surrounding our community. Responsibilities that we never could have imagined while we were growing up. And in the midst of, you know, not getting enough sleep, stress over trying to perform at our job so that we can support and, and provide for our family, in the midst of paying bills, household chores, shuttling our kids back and forth to those different extracurricular activities, patience is on short supply. I never knew how bad my own temper was until I had children. I confess, over the last decade, I've lost my temper quite a few times. There have been times coming home from work where I'm just exhausted from a long day of meetings, a long day of whatever stress that there was, and I walk in the door, and my kids aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. There are messes all over the floor, and I lose it. Or there are, t- there are times in the morning where, you know, 
We're running late. I'm busy trying to get breakfast ready for the kids. I'm busy trying to make their lunches for school. I'm busy trying to get myself ready. And when I look over, my kids are just messing around, completely oblivious to what time it is and how much time they have left. Winston Smith writes, anger is seductive in that it seems to work. It produces results I desire, if only for the short term. My spouse and my children respond to my anger, and as they do, I experience a measure of control. But like Yoda said about the dark side, anger, even though it's quicker, even though it's easier, even though it's more seductive, it's not stronger. If I think about those times in which I've lost my temper, if I reflect on what was going on in my heart, I was motivated by a selfish desire to gain or regain control over a situation. Or I was motivated by a selfish desire to get my kids to do what I thought they, were, you know, that they ought to be doing in the easiest way possible. But long term, my kids may grow numb to my outbursts. Or worse, they may start mimicking my anger. Or as Paul writes in Colossians, they may become discouraged. And so, Christian parenting requires intentional discipleship. And intentional discipleship requires us to guard against discouraging our children. So we see what intentional discipleship isn't, but what does it look like from a constructive perspective? What are some positive steps that we can take to parent well? We ought not to discourage our children, but what ought we to do? The second part of verse 4 teaches us that we have to guide our children towards godliness. It reads, Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Now, there are a few key concepts in this part of the verse. The first key concept, this idea of bringing them up, is a reminder that being a parent is a really high calling. God has entrusted our children to us, and he's given us this huge responsibility of being a part of their growth and being a part of their maturation. And what we do as parents has significant consequences for our children, both in the here and now and in eternity. God's made us this critical part of giving life to our children, both physically, literally, you know, literally giving them life, but also spiritually. And so we can't take this calling as parents lightly. This calling as parents is a calling to intentionality, a calling to bring up our kids in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, the next two concepts are these two ideas of training and instruction. The word instruction in the text has connotations of warning and admonition. In 1 Corinthians 10.11, Paul uses the same word to describe how Israel's past ought to serve as a warning for us today in the present. And this word training has connotations of correction, of discipline. In Hebrews 12, The writer of Hebrews uses the same word over and over again, and it's translated over and over again into English as discipline. 
the author of Hebrews is using an athletic metaphor as he uses this, this word discipline to describe how running a race is analogous to our walks with God. And so when you combine these two words together, training and instruction, we see an exhortation to instruct, to admonish, to teach, to correct, to discipline our children. If we use the Hebrews 12 metaphor, we're to be a coach to our kids. We're like a a high school baseball coach trying to teach a, a young high schooler how to throw a baseball, right? And so maybe the high school baseball coach might take some video of, the, of, of this player throwing a baseball, take a few hours of video, and then review this video, perhaps with the player, looking for opportunities to improve the player's throwing motion. You know, the coach might say, oh, you know, this way that you're, the way that your arm is moving here, from my experience, players who move the, their arm in this exact way are more prone to injury, so we have to tweak this in some way. Or the coach might say, you know, the way in which you're using your legs... We have to adjust this just a little bit because if you adjust it just a little bit, you'll be able to generate a lot more power and a lot more velocity when you throw. The coach might demonstrate for the player, you know, this is exactly how I want you to throw, you know, in this particular motion. The coach might even, you know, at times, if he notices that the player is being, being a little lazy or not mentally in it, the coach might make the player run laps to try to remind the player to focus. And the coach, coach is going to have this player practice this motion over and over and over again to commit it to the player's muscle memory until it becomes second nature. A lot of hard work for this player. It might even be painful at times, you know, when, when, as the player gets tired. But the coach is there to instruct the player, to oversee his training, and to provide words of encouragement so the player can reach his full potential. There's this idea of intentional discipleship being like coaching. But we're not to give our kids any kind of training or instruction. We're to give our kids training and instruction of the Lord. If I might be so bold to ask, what are your hopes and aspirations for your children? As Christian parents, We have hopes that they'll succeed in their school, that they'll succeed in their jobs, that they'll succeed in love and marriage, that they'll find some measure of financial and relational stability over the course of their lives. And yet, how do these hopes and aspirations compare with the hope that we have that they'll walk faithfully with God throughout their entire life? And how does this hope of walking faithfully manifest itself in our parenting priorities? Are we instead teaching our kids to follow and trust in the same idols that we trust in, to trust in certain things before they trust in God? Now, my parents were by no means perfect. Growing up, we never really had a regular time of family worship or family devotions, My parents would try on occasion, but it never would really stick, and so at best, it was inconsistent. And yet my parents instilled in me this idea, this priority of walking faithfully with God. My parents were extraordinarily faithful when it came to serving people at church. Now, I'm not talking about teaching children Sunday school or serving on the deacon board, which my dad did do, 
but I'm talking about how they cared for people in the church when they needed it. They noticed when people uh, were, were, were in a certain situation where they, require, where, uh, where they required care. My parents were incredibly hospitable. We regularly had people over at our house uh, to make sure that people were cared for, to make sure that people knew that they were part of the, the Christian family and that, and that they were shown God's love. My parents also demonstrated for me the idea of Sabbath. They demonstrated for me how important it was to set aside time each week for rest, both physical rest and spiritual rest. For my parents, Sabbath was like an act of worship, or was an act of worship. It was a demonstration of how they trusted in God not to work that one day. And my mom... My mom is extraordinarily faithful in her prayer life. Whatever concerns I have, whatever struggles I have, that I have, that she has, that anyone she knows has, my mom is faithful and diligent daily to lift those things up in prayer. And lastly, my parents prioritized attending uh, Sunday worship. They prioritized worshiping together corporately with other brothers and sisters. Coming to church came before academics. It came before sports. It came before leisure. It came before all other extracurriculars. And so through all these things, my parents instilled in me this priority of walking faithfully with God. And this also isn't easy in our day and age, right? I mean, unlike our parents, we can't depend on culture and on school to help instill some of these values that we want to have in our kids as American culture moves further and further and further away from a Christian worldview. And our kids go through vastly different experiences from us. I mean, for many of us who are parents, we didn't grow up in the age of the internet. So we didn't grow up in this age, even as elementary school kids, of instant communication, of information overload. Our kids have either grown up or will grow up understanding much more viscerally what human suffering looks like on a global scale as they're you know, pounded in with sensationalized news and as they constantly hear of different apocalyptic visions of catastrophes on an environmental or on a nuclear scale. And so, in the face of this real life full of suffering and evil, there's a goal to reach what Ken Barnes calls, and I'll quote, the happy midi narrative, one that seeks to find fulfillment in the simple pleasures of the here and now, as opposed to the meta-narrative of the Judeo-Christian worldview that operates on an eternal plane. It is neither optimistic nor pessimistic. It is purely pragmatic and utilitarian. Now, if that quote made absolutely no sense to you because of the large, multi-syllable words, then that kind of makes sense because our kids are hard to understand, right? And so, how can we understand our kids? And the first step is to listen to them, to hear the struggles, to hear what they're going through. We might have wisdom and experience, but we have to know the context of what our kids are facing to understand how to apply that wisdom, how to apply that experience to, their, to, to, to what they're dealing with in life. We might have wisdom and experience, but just like a pitcher is going to listen to, uh, the coach rather, is going to listen to the pitcher when the pitcher complains about some abnormal pain in his shoulder or elbow, we have to be willing to listen first, even before perhaps we instruct. 
Proverbs 18.13 writes, To answer before listening, that is folly and shame. And so as we seek to guide our children towards godliness, we need to listen to them, prioritizing walking faithfully with God as we seek to coach them towards spiritual maturity. So Christian parenting requires intentional discipleship. And this means that we need to guard against discouraging our children. And this means that we need to guide our children towards godliness. But training and discipline aren't all that's required. A coach needs to instill in the player a vision of why that player is going through all this training. A coach needs to instill what the end goal looks like, why all this is going to be worth it. And in the same way, we as parents... In order to disciple intentionally, we have to have a foundation of what it means to walk faithfully with God and what it is that we're shooting for. Which brings us to the third G of Christian parenting, which is that we need to ground ourselves in the gospel. Four chapters before this, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, we read, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now these three verses are a pretty good summary of what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. The gospel is not legalism or moralism. As we consider our own lives, we know that we, there's nothing that we can do that, to get, earn enough merit from doing good works either towards each other, towards our community, or towards God that can save us. We know that what saves us is God's grace and God's grace alone, a grace completely undeserved, a grace that stems from God's love for us, God's love that predates anything that we possibly can or will do. We're brought back into relationship with God by trusting and relying on Jesus. And we need Jesus to take away our guilt and shame, a guilt and shame that comes from our sin, that comes from our brokenness, that comes from falling short of this high standard of God's perfect holiness, of God's perfect righteousness that we must have in order to be in relationship with this perfect God. But how does this show up in our parenting? Or do we take Christ completely out of the equation when it comes to trying to get our children to behave the way that we want them to behave, to behave in a, in a moral way? Now, I know, especially with young kids, it's hard to explain abstract concepts like justification and sanctification and all these fancy words, right? But as we parent, even our young kids... Are we showing them the grace of God alongside the discipline of God? And are we implicitly showing them what it means to rely on Christ? Something that it's going to take them an entire lifetime to fully understand. Now, five or six years ago, God started to convict me about my own parenting. Five or six years ago, I realized that as a parent, I was, psychologically, I was having a hard time admitting any wrong that I did. 
And so when it came to my kids, I never admitted any wrong, any sin, any wrongdoing, anything that, you know, if I lost my temper, it wasn't, I would never admit that that was something that I was doing wrong to my kids. Part of that was because I was worried about losing their respect. And part of that was worried that, worrying that if I lost their respect, that I would lose the ability for me to influence them towards where I wanted them to go in their lives. And God started to convict me about this because he started to show me that by presenting myself as someone who couldn't do any wrong, I was implicitly telling them that their self-worth was founded in following the rules that I had laid down or rules that they might project onto God and God's law. I was unintentionally setting a standard for them that they couldn't achieve. It was at this time that I realized that as a parent, God is calling me to model for them what the gospel means. God is calling me to model for them what repentance and what belief and trust in Christ looks like. God is calling for me to, to show them weakness, but not just to stop there, but to show them how in my weakness, Christ has forgiven me, Christ has redeemed me, And Christ is transforming me. Some of you might be familiar with this gospel waltz. Those of you involved in the Life on Life discipleship stuff um, have seen this. It's called a waltz because there are three steps. And this gospel waltz is a powerful way of both for ourselves when we sin, of how we walk towards being in right relationship with God. It's a powerful way for us to model for our children what it looks like when we sin. And it's also a model that we can use to help coach our children in what the gospel means. The first step is repentance. What is repentance? Repentance involves understanding our sinful nature, understanding the attitudes that are already there, the sinful attitudes that we have behind our sinful actions. It involves seeing our complete depravity, and our utter need for God, utter need for something because we can't by ourselves be good. Repentance involves confessing our attitudes, confessing our sinful nature, confessing our actions to God, turning away from them. Step two is belief. But belief, you know, in our culture sometimes, we we treat belief as this cognitive idea, right? Like, I believe that the earth is round. I cognitively believe the earth is round. But belief biblically goes much deeper than just cognitive belief. Belief involves trust. And so belief involves, do we trust that God actually loves us? Do we trust that God loves us so much, even though we were his enemies, even though we were rebellious against him, that he came to this world in Christ lived to show us who he was, and died for us on the cross? Do we believe that Jesus' life and death is sufficient to take away that sin, to take away that shame, to take away that guilt, so that we can be restored in relationship with God and with each other? Do we stand on the truth, both in our head, but in our hearts and in our will too, that Jesus died for us? But the gospel doesn't just stop with repentance and belief. There's also obedience. But it's not obedience because, because, you know, we, because we try to obey in order to gain God's favor. 
It's an obedience that comes from a, a, a belief first in Christ and then God's Holy Spirit indwelling within us to work in our hearts, to change who we are, not just from a passive perspective, but in an active way, in engaging with our will. It's a belief that even as we're trying not to sin, even as we struggle to do good, that it's God's Holy Spirit working within our will to enable that to be possible. It's a turning away from our sin and turning towards God because of what God has done for us and through the power that God has given us in his Holy Spirit. And so, as we seek to parent our children, our parenting has to be grounded in the gospel. We have to ground ourselves and the way in which we parent in this truth of the gospel. And this requires a lot of intentionality. Christian parenting requires intentional discipleship. We need to intentionally guard against discouraging our children. We need to intentionally guide our children towards godliness. We need to intentionally ground ourselves in the gospel. But you know, even as we seek to be intentional, we're still, we're still not going to be perfect parents. We're still living in a broken world. We're still imperfect people that are slowly being made perfect by God, but still imperfect people. And so we sin. We still fall short and have to go through this gospel waltz anew. We fail as parents, and we will fail as parents. And even if we were the best parents ever, our children have wills of their own, and there's no guarantee that they're going to choose to walk faithfully with God. So as we look at our parenting failures, what can we do? In the end, all we can do is fall on the mercy of God. To fall on the mercy of God in going through this gospel waltz, to trust that he is working in us, to trust that he is transforming us, that even in our parenting, that he's making us more godly each and every day, to lean on him, to know that God can redeem our brokenness. God can redeem our failures as parents and to look towards him to do so and to make us whole. And for our kids, in the same way, we have to remember God entrusted our kids to us. We're just stewards of our children. We don't own them. And so when it comes to to our children and our worries that we have for them, We have to rely on God. Just like we rely on God for our own salvation, we also have to rely on God to be working in our kids' hearts, to be transforming our kids' hearts, to be drawing them closer to him. We need to rely on Christ and lift our children up in prayer as we seek to be be good parents. Christian parenting requires intentional discipleship. In our intentional discipleship, we bring our children towards God, lift them up towards him, and rely on God to be the one that transforms them. Let's pray.